Our sermon title today is We Believe the Doctrine-Driven Life. And we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. May God bless the preaching of his word. The Apostle Paul says that he had left Timothy in Ephesus. He also says here that he hopes to come to him soon. And he tells Timothy that he wrote this letter so that the church would be true to her calling as a pillar of truth. As the church, we are, verse 15, the household of God. We are family. We are the church of the living God. God is not dead. And we are a pillar and buttress of the truth called to uphold and protect and proclaim the truth of God's word. And then Paul declares this truth. Verse 16 says our confession is great indeed, meaning that we are dealing here with weighty and glorious truths. Um, on several occasions, if you read through the New Testament and Paul's letters in particular, you'll see that he refers to the tradition that has been taught, the, the statements that are being passed down through the apostolic teaching. So in chapter 1 of this book, 1 Timothy, in verse 15, for example, Paul is using well-established language, a statement of the faith, when he says in chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy, the statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here in chapter 3, verse 16, we have what most scholars believe is a known confession of faith in the early church. Six declarations we confess concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that are great indeed, all contained in verse 16. One, he was manifested in the flesh. The incarnation of the pre-existent Son of God with glory manifested in his birth and in his life. Two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. The crucified Savior rose to new life by the power of the living God. Three, he was seen by angels. The victorious one ascended as heaven's champion, received and worshipped in the angelic realm. Four, he was proclaimed among the nations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not contained. It is spreading to people from every tribe and language. Five, he was believed on in the world through faith and repentance. 
countless sinners, including me, who were once objects of God's wrath, now belong to Christ and live by faith in him believed on in the world. Our declaration as Christians is not, we are good. Our declaration is, we believe. Our declaration is Christ. Six, he was taken up in glory, exalted to the right hand of God from where he will return again to judge the living and the dead and we will reign with him forever. Great indeed. Great indeed, we confess, is the message of Jesus Christ. Great indeed is the glory of this gospel, the mystery of godliness. Now these kinds of creedal statements of the faith appear in scripture and in the history of the church. Our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries, creeds and confessions are attested by the final authority of God's word. They do not supplant or even supplement God's word. They summarize it and that is their value. You can study the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD dealing with the Arian controversy concerning Christology or the Council of Constantinople or Chalcedon in those early centuries of the church, from the beginning, they were developing these statements of the faith. They developed the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition. At the time of the Reformation, in the 16th and 17th centuries, you have the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the 39 articles, the shorter and larger catechisms of the Westminster Assembly. Throughout her history, the church the people of God have created creeds and confessions that have been greatly treasured, that have been read individually and in the gatherings of the church to articulate and to celebrate the glorious truths of God's word, those truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. We confess the same great truths, and they are in this statement of faith. A confession of faith has always been of great importance in the church and in the lives of believers, and I want today to give five reasons why. Okay, so five points as to the value of this, a confession of faith. First, a confession of faith reinforces our identity as a church. A confession of faith reinforces our identity as a church. The church is not the pillar of gifted leadership or the pillar of dynamic personalities, thank God. We are not the pillar of creativity and innovation. In fact, there's a very real sense in which we are the exact opposite of that. We are the pillar of truth. We exist by and for the truth. We stand upon the apostles' teaching. We hold to the unpopular idea that doctrine matters. Too many Christians today no longer know what to look for in a church. No longer is doctrine a leading consideration. We say doctrine matters. We are unapologetically a confessional church, meaning we are brought together through a common confession of personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and 
a corporate confession of sound doctrine. I am, a, I am a confessional Christian. I believe that public written creeds are good for the church and that the statements in our confession of faith are a reliable summary of the teaching of Scripture. And in fact, this whole subject is a deeply personal one for me. I made a promise when I was ordained a minister of the gospel to steward and to hold fast to the truths in the particular statement of faith in our denomination. And I have submitted myself to an institution, this church and Sovereign Grace Churches, that has the authority to enforce the truth should I ever drift from it. I also think about my children. This confession is a primary way we transmit to posterity a knowledge of the truth that our children and our children's children, those who are dedicated to the Lord today and their children, that future generations would receive the precious legacy of the doctrines of Christ. One of my uh, favorite family videos that I have, I went back and watched it um, just this week, is from eight years ago when my oldest daughter Lily was five years old, and she's at the dinner table reciting the Apostles' Creed, which we had all memorized as a family, as a five-year-old with the cutest little voice ever, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and on through the entire confession. May those truths spoken out of the mouths of children forever be their strength and their joy. Church, this is who we are, a pillar of the truth. Second, uh, a confession of faith guards us against wrong ideas is the second value of a confession of faith. Immediately following our passage is, comes 1 Timothy 4, and at the beginning of chapter 4, it speaks of those who depart from the faith through false teaching. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus for this reason, to charge people not to teach any different doctrine. Many are the churches and many are the denominations that have lost their way, tragically, by abandoning doctrinal fidelity. We are vulnerable to passing trends and winds of doctrine which will lead us off of the proper way and make shipwreck of our faith. And so, like Ulysses, I need help to block out the enchanting song of the sirens that would destroy me. I need my men to tie me to the mast of that old ship and point me home. I am prone to wander. And so we pray, Lord, bind me to the truth. Bind me to yourself and to your word that I might be protected from myself and from this world, from every lie, from every wrong idea, and that I might finish well holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. God, keep us from false doctrine. Keep us from believing wrong ideas that are not in keeping with your truth. God is faithful he will protect us, and he will use his truth to do it. Third, a confession of faith unites us around what's most important. It was also in chapter 1 that 
Paul urged Timothy to charge people to not devote themselves to peripheral matters, which in those days, what he mentions, were myths and genealogies that promoted speculation. The truth is often abandoned, not through denial, but through displacing and thereby distorting what is central through the focus on matters of relative unimportance. Sometimes when I disagree with another Christian, when I disagree with another church member or one of the pastors on something, I think of the statement of faith and I have said, you've heard me say this before, well, we sure do agree on a lot and what we agree on are all the most important things. And it's good in our moments of disagreement to realize the agreement that we have on the most important thing. See, this statement of faith should call our attention to the essentials of the faith and the denominational distinctives that unite us and should put all other issues in their place as matters of lesser importance when compared to the fundamental truths that bind us together in Christ. Carl Truman has a book called The Creedal Imperative. We have this. It's a great book, The Creedal Imperative. Sounds like the name of a Mission Impossible movie. Mission Impossible, The Creedal Imperative. You know, a guy just runs around trying to convince churches of the importance of creeds. Um, but Truman makes this point. He says, creeds and confessions focus the church's mind on the main thing. The church with a creed or confession has a built-in gospel reality check. It is unlikely to become sidetracked by the peripheral issues of the passing moment. Rather, it will focus instead on the great theological categories that touch on matters of eternal significance. Yes, we are focusing, we are building a church on the great theological truths of the faith. We are focusing on God and his character and his word. We are focusing on creation and the person and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit and redemption and salvation and the church and the hope of Christ's return and the consummation. And as we do this, it promotes harmony and unity in the church. It reminds us that we are of one accord and the same mind because we hold these truths in common. And every time we read these truths or declare them together with one voice in our gathering, it demonstrates our unity and it calls us away from the periphery and away from the matters of disagreement that could become central. And it calls us back to the center and unites us around what is most important. Fourth, a confession of faith helps us grow in maturity. Helps us grow in maturity. Some Christians can at times be impatient with theology because it seems impractical. Uh, but Paul says in verse 14 that he's writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, behavior, lifestyle, maturity is what is in view. And in chapter 6, verse 3, it refers to the sound words of our 
Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The teaching that accords with godliness. The late J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that studying theology is the most practical project anyone can engage in. And he borrows uh, an image from another theologian and says that there are two ways people can approach spiritual things. He says some are like people who sit on the high balcony of a, of a Spanish house and watch travelers go by on the road below. That's one way you can approach it. He calls them the balconiers. Uh, the other group are the travelers themselves. And so the balconiers can overhear the talk of travelers. They can comment critically on the way they should walk. They can discuss various roads. But their engagement is entirely theoretical, and they are concerned with theoretical problems only. The travelers, on the other hand, face problems that are essentially and deeply practical, like how they are going to make it on the journey. And Packer explains this difference. So he says in Knowing God, when it comes to the reality of evil, the balcony up there, the problem is to find a theoretical explanation for how evil can exist with God's sovereignty and goodness. The traveler's problem, he says, is to experience the defeat of evil in our lives. In relation to sin, Packer says the person on the balcony is asking whether racial sinfulness and personal perversity are credible explanations for reality, while the traveler, he says, knowing sin in the experience of his heart and life, asks what hope there is of deliverance. On the doctrine of God, he says, the person on the balcony focuses on how one God can conceivably be three persons. The traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust toward the three persons who even now are together at work to bring her out of sin and to glory. This is the way of the traveler. And listen, our statement of faith is a statement for travelers. It's grounded in the conviction that knowing is for living and that the only way to live a fruitful life is to live a doctrine-driven life centered on the knowledge of God. Theology is not theoretical. It is practical. Use this confession of faith as a means to grow in godliness and in your love for Christ. And then fifth and last point, a confession of faith produces a life of praise. Produces a life of praise. It could be that some of you are wary of the idea of creeds and confessions, even when we start talking about those things. Perhaps you've seen uh, and even experienced through your church experience, how tradition can become lifeless, how uh, statements can become rote. The good news is that in Scripture, doctrine leads to doxology, which is praise. This is no dry statement of the truth. Paul himself says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He's swept up in the glory, in the greatness, in the wonder of these truths. In chapter one, after he repeats a familiar saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he then says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
The goal, what's the goal? The goal is not dead tradition or formality or meaningless repetition. We are the church of the living God and the truth we proclaim is life and power and joy to our souls. We proclaim it as that which our souls depend on for our sustenance, for our perseverance. Tradition is not bad. Newer is not always better. Our faith is ancient and therein lies its glory. J.V. Fesco in his book, The Need for Creeds Today, says this, when we create, profess, and pass confessions down to future generations, and that is exactly what we are doing. We've created and we are professing and we are passing confessions down to future generations. He says, we do not propagate the dead faith of the living, but the living faith of the dead. We practice the democracy of the dead. That's Chesterton's phrase for tradition, the democracy of the dead. We practice the democracy of the dead and join hands with the saints from ages past to give witness to the lordship of the triune God and the redemption that comes through the gospel of Christ. And he says, as we join hands with our ancestors, we can create trustworthy sayings about our common salvation and look to the horizon as we catechize future generations so that they too may contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We want this document and this sermon series to shape us as a church, to educate, to inspire. We must not allow, church, the great doctrines of Scripture to become peripheral in our hearts or in our lives. We want to be a church full of theologically mature believers valuing Bible doctrine for the purposes of doxology, the praise-filled response of the heart, and devotion, the practical godliness in our lives that is the result of knowing the truth and building our lives on Christ. I want to have the band return to the stage now. B.B. Warfield tells a story that I want to share with you in closing. He tells the story of a general officer of the United States Army. This was decades ago. He was in a large city during a time of intense excitement and violent rioting, this officer was. The streets were overrun daily by dangerous crowds. One day, this officer observed approaching him a man of remarkable calmness and firmness, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. And so impressed was the officer with this man's countenance in the midst of the surrounding uproar that as he walked past him, he turned and looked back at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. And when the stranger saw that he turned as well, he immediately came back to the officer, touching his chest with his forefinger, and demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? which is the first question to the Westminster Catechism. And the reply came, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then he said, aha, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. And the officer said, I was just thinking the same of you. <laughs> Knowing is for living. 
And when theology functions, the truth will transform our disposition in the midst of the crowds and the chaos of our day. We believe the great doctrines of the Bible are true. We believe that Christ is the Savior of the world, my Lord and my God. We believe that he has rescued us through his death on the cross, giving us peace, giving us hope, giving us joy forever. We believe, we believe, let the church proclaim Let the church shout it. Let the church sing it. Let the church build our lives around these truths. We believe and we will go on believing until Christ comes again and faith turns to sight and we worship him forever. We believe, my Lord and my God, let the church proclaim the glorious truths that have changed our lives that we continue to build our lives upon for the glory of his name, amen.